Thank you. You know, Graham said, uh, do you need a program? I said, oh, no, I'll be right. (laughs) I needed the program. (laughs) Well, um, it's great to be back with you, and it's been a wonderful experience working with the the working group, and uh, we're really making some progress, and and, uh, I think uh, there's a great deal of hope for the future. Uh, I want to talk today um, about the distinctive of our faith. Uh, this is one of your mission uh, Sundays <clears throat> and I was thinking, well, what can I share on a mission Sunday? And I thought, you know what, what is it that we have to offer the world that nobody else has? What is, it, what is the uniqueness of our faith? <clears throat> What's the uniqueness of, uh, of Christianity? What is the mission that we have? And what is the message, message that we have to share with the world? What drives us to do that? So, um, hence uh, me focusing on this topic today, which is titled Forgiveness and Grace. Now, we started with, um, with the uh, Lord's Prayer. And again, I've, uh, I've shared this before, um, and I've talked about the Lord's Prayer, how it's an imperative as much as a pattern for prayer, and it's actually instructions to us. The Lord's saying, <clears throat> well, if you're going to pray, pray for these things. And surely if he asks us to pray for those things, that's what he wants us to do. But it's very interesting that at the, um, at the end of the Lord's Prayer, this is what he says. After he's given these instructions, it says this is the imperative, this is the pattern for living, these are the things I want you to be involved in in this world. He says these things. If you, <clears throat> for if you forgive other people, oh, sorry, um, in the Lord's Prayer, he says, forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who sin against us, or in some translations, it's debts. And this is the common saying. But then he says, if you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, your Father will not forgive your sins. Now, not many people go on to those verses, and you can see why. They have a very interesting perspective. And it's quite clear what Jesus is saying here. That, that our forgiveness is tied up with how we forgive others and how we respond to others' sins. Well, what does this mean? Have you ever wrestled with this and tried to work it out in the context of salvation and faith and all the things that, that uh, Lee was sharing? The free gift of salvation? What does all this mean in that context? And these verses are in a very prominent place where Jesus was giving the instructions to his disciples about what to pray for and what to live for. So what do these mean? I think that um, we are faced with many challenges in our world today and some of those were shared this morning by Lee as well. And, um, and Graham shared some, you know, some of the challenges that people face in our world. But one of the things, the biggest challenges I think we face in the world is all the evil, all the great evil that we see. And the, and the perpetrators of that evil and they feature much in our news a number of years ago um, Jenny and I had an opportunity when we, when we were in Youth of Christ to go to Rwanda it was actually right, right in the beginning of the 2000s and uh, it wasn't too long after the genocide and this photo comes from our visit there and I'm going to explain this photo to you um, so some of you might not even know about the genocide in, in Rwanda but there was two tribal groups the Hutu and the Tutsi and the Hutu were the dominant group they were in power and the Tutsi were a smaller group and they were being repressed and in the end the Hutu 
um, leaders decided they were going to finally solve the Tutsi problem. And so they, they got these youth groups together, basically, and they got all these young people across the nation and they told them, uh, all, all Hutu young people, and they told them, you know, we're going to solve the, finally going to solve the Tutsi problem. Uh, they formed militias and uh, they put some of their military leaders in charge of all these little youth groups and they said, you know, we're going to put this message out over the radio and we want you to be listening and then that's the, that's the trigger for you to go out and slaughter all the Tutsi in our nation. And they did, they put that message over there and then all these young people went out and they started slaughtering Tutsi. And they killed over a million people in, th- in uh, three months, you know, in three-month period. Mostly using machetes and other brutal weapons. So um, when we were there, uh, the National Director, Jean-Baptiste Magurua, decided that he would take us out and show us what this was all about, give us an experience that we could actually convey um, what happened. He lived through it. People tried to kill him all the time. He was an advocate for peace and therefore he was singled out and he actually lived through the whole hundred days of slaughter and managed to survive. So he took us way out to this remote place in Rwanda and uh, and, and they hadn't, at this stage hadn't seen many uh, white people out there for a long time because we got out of the car and all the kids ran away and I said, well, why are the kids running away, John Baptiste? And he said, well, the parents have told the kids that the white people are going to eat them if they catch them, so they all run in away. So, uh, you know, they hadn't seen many people like us and he took us to this little village and... Um, and as we're walking through this village, he's taking us to this church and he's explaining the story. He said this was mainly a Tutsi village and the Hutu were coming in. They knew, the parents knew that. And so uh, the fathers of all the families sent their wife and their children into the church. Because it was a very, uh, Rwanda was a very religious country and uh, they had a lot of Anglican churches and they sent them into the church and they said, you know, the people here, all people respect the church. They won't kill you or they won't hurt you in the church. And they sent them to the church. The militia leader came along with all these young people, all these teenagers, gave them a few hand grenades and said, they're all in the church, great, throw these hand grenades through the windows. And they did. And they went into the church and they killed all the rest of the people who they even found alive. And this was just left. So we walked into this church and this is what we saw. These are the remains of all those people all piled up to these benches which people used to sit on and we walked on the benches because you couldn't walk on the floor because there's all these bones and these little children's skulls. And it was just horrific. And I don't show you that just to shock you. I just show you that to see how depraved and how horrible humankind can be. Now, when you think of the leaders who perpetrated that, how do you forgive those people? Now, we were there and we just came across um, through the John Baptist we came across a woman and uh, she was from a Tutsi family. She was, had a young family and um, this, this is a young man, an 18-year-old guy, came into her village and leading the, all these teenagers and, they, and she wasn't there. She was actually out um, taking some goods somewhere and she, and she came back and all her family had been slaughtered. Her little children were dead. They were all just slaughtered in her village. Now, after um, this time, the, uh, this time of genocide, uh, the Tutsi uh, who who got away formed a 
militia of their own came back in, they actually took control of the country and they're still in the ruling power. And, um, and as we were driving back, there was all these villages um, that we saw and in the villages were these little gatherings. And I said, what's going on? John Baptiste said, well, that's the courts. They're having these courts in the villages. And then what happens is all the villages come around and they say, they identify the people who did all the slaughtering, did the killing. And then they were locking them all up in jail. Well, you can imagine, here's this country and it is actually devastated. There's no infrastructure anymore. They're putting all these people into jail, a lot of people into jail. And they said, the only way that you're going to get fed here in this jail, once you're convicted or looked after, is if your families feed you. If you don't have any food, bad luck. And there were people dying of starvation in jail. So it's still a horrific situation. This is straight after the war. Anyway, somebody came to this lady who'd lost all her family and said, oh, that young man who killed, who killed your family, he's been convicted in the court recently and he's in jail and, uh, and his family got killed as well and so he's got nobody to feed him so he's going to die of starvation. He's finally going to get what he deserves. This, this woman is a believer. So she goes to the jail and she finds this young man. She goes up to him and she says... I know you killed my family, but I also know your family was killed. Now, his family were Hutu, but in those days, I mean, actually the Hutu and the Tutsi were only two tribes because the Belgian colonists decided they needed two tribes so they could control the people and divide them into two tribes. So it was really hard to work out who was Hutu and Tutsi, and then people came into their village and they worked out these people were tall because that's one of the ways they thought they could work out who the Tutsi were, and his family were tall, and they killed them all because they said, oh, you must be Tutsi even if you say you're Hutu. So he'd lost his family as well. So she comes in and she meets this young man and she says, you killed my family, I have no family. But I also know your family was killed. I'm going to adopt you as my son. And so she did. And she fed him, she looked after him, he got out of jail eventually. And he became a believer. Now, how does that make sense? I mean, that's just ridiculous. This guy needed to suffer. He was convicted fairly. And he really deserved the death penalty. So just this does not make sense in the context of our, our world, a world that we actually, hopefully, if we're civilised, we seek justice. We seek justice. So thinking about that and thinking about the horrific things we see in the world... How do you apply this? Jesus goes on after he's done these, um, these teachings about forgiveness. He said, you've heard it was said, an eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, we'll hand over your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you. And do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You've heard it said, love your neighbour and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This is another nonsensical, in, you know, in the context of our world and how we live, it's a nonsensical statement. This is, this is crazy. When, why, how can you apply this? And I mean, many, oh, we all know these verses. If we've been a believer for any time at all, we know these verses. But how many of us think it through in the context of our world and apply it in our life on a daily basis? 
I think to work all this out, uh, we've got to go back to the fundamentals of our existence, of our reality, because it is very difficult to even grasp how to apply these things, let alone apply them. In Romans 1.20, we're told, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, been understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Now, I'm sort of changing tack here, okay? Because I think we need to understand a few things about our world to understand how to apply these principles and these values that Jesus has given us and even to understand this whole concept of forgiving others so that we can be forgiven. I believe that what these verses are saying, that any, well, I think the principle here is that creation reveals God and therefore any honest study, any honest study of creation will always reveal who God is, the creator God, and validate the truth of the Bible. I, I have practised that principle in my life since I did my first tertiary studies in science. And we know that there are laws in our universe and um, you know, in our space-time reality, there are laws. There's four dimensions, height, depth, width and time. Now, science has made amazing advances and, um, and they've been able to describe more, with more and more accuracy uh, the creation event. One of the people who I read everything I can grab a hold of is Stephen Hawking. I started reading him yonks ago when uh, somebody gave me the book Brief History of Time. And so I read a lot of Stephen Hawking's writings and he's become actually more known now because of the film The Theory of Everything. Some of you might have seen that film. Who's, who's seen the film The Theory of Everything? Well, there are. some of you have. <clears throat> Stephen Hawking is said to be the greatest genius since Einstein. So if you're going to try and understand what this universe is all about and what the latest of science is actually discovering it'd be a good thing to read Stephen Hawking because you know here he is he's analyzing and he's and he's and I think he's an honest scientist physicist astrophysicist genius so I read all his stuff and then when he refers to giving lectures to um at these particular momentous times in his life when he's brought out a whole new concept I'll go and find find the, the lecture that he gave and read that as well now, you might say I'm, I'm, think I'm a bit strange, um, but one of the things that he's said in his latest book, The Grand Design, is um, that there's this amazingly strong anthropic principle that is represented in our universe, in our space-time reality. So in studying the universe, in studying creation, and in looking at the creation event through science, which they can now through measure, measuring the cosmic um, waves in our Universe, he has come up with a very clear description of how this world and this universe has been created for humanity, and then how there is actually a beginning, and there is um, there's there's uh, a time when there was no time. There's actually uh, you know our, our reality has been created, and it, outside of that is no time. There's no time. There's no dimensions. And yet, then after he declares all that, he spends the rest of the book trying to explain away God even though I think he's actually established almost without doubt that there is a God and this universe has been uniquely designed 
fire God and he comes up with all kinds of wonderful explanations as to why there's no such thing as miracles and no such thing or no need for God and in the end he says it all started with a quantum fluctuation which I don't think is um, a really good explanation. Now why do I tell you all that? There is a reason. Because you know we're, our universe is governed by these laws and science is, is discovering more and more about who we are and about our existence. But something that transcends even the physical laws of our universe are what are called the three laws of logical thought. Now these three laws of logical thought uh, were first described by Socrates and then Plato and then Aristotle, some of the greatest thinkers of humanity. And since then they've been confirmed by all all of the greatest thinkers of our time, including those in the field of science and maths. And these are three laws of logical thought. The law of identity, each thing is the same with itself and different from another. The law of non-contradiction, nothing can be both, both be and not be, and the law of the excluded middle, everything must either be or not be. Now you're going, well, what on earth are you talking about, David? <laughs> All right. Anybody, has anybody here studied philosophy? Engineering? Maths? Okay. You might know about these particularly the law of non-contradiction. These are foundational to everything, to math, science, ethics, morals, everything that exists in our reality because they deal with truth and right and wrong and they apply way beyond what even Stephen Hawking is describing. They extend into the extra-dimensional world of God and the eternal realm in which he dwells. So these laws, as I said, creation reveals God. These laws actually reveal the nature of God. And people arrived at these laws, the geniuses of our humanity arrived at these laws by studying creation and studying humanity and thinking through how does this all work. Now, I want to talk about the law of non-contradiction because this is the fundamental law of our existence and beyond. They say, these geniuses, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle and many of the scientific geniuses, including Einstein, that this is an inviolable natural law. They call it a natural law. It goes beyond space-time. It's the basis by which all other laws of philosophy, science, mathematics, truth and ethics are derived. So as much as you might not have heard of this before, this is fundamental to all math science and all of our learning and all of our existence. And I think it's important that we know this. Now you might think, why, why are you going here, David? This is strange. You're meant to be talking about grace and forgiveness. So I think it's absolutely essential that we understand the fundamentals of our existence for us to apply the principles of grace and forgiveness. So what the law of non-contradiction allows us to do is distinguish between truth and lie, between right and wrong. It's, uh, it's when two propositions like A, if I say A is B, 
and A is not B, well, you know, they're mutually exclusive. It, 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 you can't have A, can't be B, and not B. All right? Now, that might sound silly. I'll try and explain it a bit better. Um, it's probably not going to help. That's the mathematical formula that was put together to describe this. This principle was stated as a theorem of propositional logic by the greatest mathematical geniuses of our modern time, Bertrand Russell and Alfred Whitehead, who wrote a three-volume mathematical masterpiece called Principia Mathematica. Now, how many of you read that? (laughs) Right. And in that book, they said this is the fundamental... If you're going to reduce it all back to something, this is the fundamental formula for all mathematics, for all of our understanding of the universe. Now, these are some of the greatest mathematicians of our time. So if this is a principle, if this is the fundamental law that God has put in place for us to derive everything else from, we've got to actually think about this and apply it to our reality and the things that we are learning about how we are to live this faith. So the way the law of non-contradiction works, it's like, if you let's say there's two propositions. Say I say it's raining outside and you look outside and it's raining and then you might say to me, well... Actually, it's not raining outside. Now, I'll go, well, um, I beg to disagree. And I say, no, in Sydney, it's not raining outside. So, what, see, this is the, look, if you're in a philosophy class, this happens all the time. This is what we talk about. You know, you talk like this all the time. And you, and you say, well, no, hang on a minute, because they're saying your statement's not true. You say it's raining outside, and I say it's not raining outside. But what the law of non-contradiction says that if all the situation is the same, then if I say it's raining outside and it's in Melbourne at this particular time, you can't contradict that because that's a reality. It's either is or it isn't. So it's true what I say. Okay, how do we apply this in the context of the Bible? Matthew says, no one can serve two masters or Jesus says no one can serve two masters either you will hate one and love the other or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other you cannot serve both God and money here is the principle of the law of non-contradiction applied in a biblical context you cannot worship both God and Satan you can't have two gods this is the law of non-contradiction reduced down to the fundamentals of our faith so, now we've got, we understand all that, don't we? Good. Now we understand all that, let's go to mercy and justice. Justice says, or justice demands compliance with the prescribed law and punishes those who do not comply. Right. So, I think we'll all agree with that. In a philosophy class, you wouldn't, because you'd want to argue about that. But... I think that's a fundamental truth of our faith. Mercy is the provision of leniency or clemency when someone deserves to suffer the consequences of their crime. So here are two things, two fundamentals actually of our existence that a lot of our legal systems built on. And these things, the law of non-contradiction says they, they can't have justice and mercy. Uh, well, justice is not satisfied if you, if you apply mercy, all right? So... The law of non-contradiction would suggest that God cannot both be just and merciful at the same time. 
because justice is not satisfied if mercy is applied. And if God says, I am a God of justice, and justice has to be satisfied in, in my world and in my existence, then how do you have mercy? And then if mercy is provided, justice is still not satisfied because you are actually ignoring the sin. So you see how the law of non-contradiction applies in this context. However, into this situation, this whole contradiction, we bring Jesus. Jesus came and he lived on this earth as a human being, but he lived a perfect life. Now, when somebody, if, if somebody dies for a, a sin or gets or punished, they're paying for their sin. But the fundamentals of our gospel, of our faith, is that Jesus lived a perfect life. And therefore, when he died on the cross, he wasn't paying for his own sin. If he'd sinned, if he'd done anything wrong in his life, anything, then when he died, because the penalty of sin is death, he would be dying for his sin. Because Jesus was perfect, when he died, he could die for somebody else. And therefore, he satisfied the requirements of both justice and mercy because Jesus died and paid the price. So justice is satisfied. Now, only a perfect human being could do that, could pay the penalties for others. So he satisfies, Jesus' death satisfies the demands of the law which require death but also offers Mercy. So grace, that's called grace. Grace breaks the inviolable law of non-contradiction. This titanic act of Jesus when he died on the cross and paid the price for everybody's sin actually changed the nature of reality in space and time. The whole fundamentals, even beyond our very existence, even beyond our space-time reality, even into the eternal, the whole thing was tipped upside down. No wonder the earth shook. No wonder there was a cataclysmic response to Jesus' death on that cross from our world. We're told in Psalm 85.10, Mercy and truth have kissed Righteousness and peace kiss each other. So here then is the fundamentals of our faith. We're going to go on to this and have a look at how this applies in our world and in our life and in our gospel. But before we do that, I just want to talk about a story. C.S. Lewis was probably one of the greatest literary geniuses of the human race, um, particularly certainly of our modern time, and he was a believer, became a believer through chatting to Tolkien about metaphysical things. And, uh, and so he became a great apologist for our faith. He was a, he was a fantastic writer and I read all of his books, loved C.S. Lewis. And he was both a professor at Cambridge and Oxford in literary, literature and, uh, and in 
those, those two universities combined at, um, well, at the time in history um, and they called for all these experts on religion to come from all over the world, all these academics, and they met in Oxford and they were having a conference on comparative religions. These experts from around the world were trying to, were debating what, if any, belief was unique to the Christian faith. How was it different? Was it different? And then they began eliminating the possibilities. Incarnation, no, they said that other religions had different versions of God's appearing in human form. Resurrection, again, other religions had accounts of return from death. And the debate went on and on and on. And the things that these people were debating about, the things that we sometimes say, well, that's unique. No, Jesus died. And, you know, and they say, well, no. We have the incarnation, isn't that? No, it's not. So they were debating this. These are the experts on religion in the world. And C.S. Lewis wanders into the room because he hears this going on and he says this. What's the rumpus about? And he heard the reply. His colleagues were discussing Christianity's unique contribution to world religions. And this is what Lewis said in response. Oh, that's easy. It's grace. After some discussion, the conferees had to agree the notion of God's Love coming to us free of charge, no strings attached, seemed to go against every instinct of humanity. So what is the distinctive of our faith? It's, it's grace. And we're told that um, in Romans uh, we're, we're given this description of how Jesus changed our reality. When Adam's sins, uh, sin entered the world, Adam's sin brought death. So death spread to everyone for everyone's sin. Yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone, but Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and new life for everyone. So just as sin ruled over all people and brought them to death, now God's wonderful grace rules instead, giving us right standing with God and resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So Jesus came and he died for the sins of everybody everyone. This is not universalism, but Jesus has paid the price for everyone's sin. Now, whether people choose to accept that or not is the fundamentals of the gospel. But the reality is that Jesus changed the whole fundamentals of our existence. And if we understand the Old Testament and how Sacrifices were made, and they never, you know, they had to keep being made because it never resolved that issue, never resolved that conflict, that contradiction, that paradox. But Jesus did. And so, when we forgive, and we don't pursue recompense or punishment, when we go to somebody and we say, "Oh well, we forgive you," the terrorist who's killed all these people that woman who went to that young man and said, I forgive you. Or you might even say this is somebody who's cheated you or done something nasty to you or just been downright lousy. Well, you know what? I forgive you. Well, is it legitimate for somebody then to say to us, well, it certainly is in this context of this world, well, you're going to let them get away with that. You're going to let them get away with that? How many times have you heard that? You're going to let them get away with that? Boy, when somebody's not convicted, particularly some of those apex people, and they get let out on the street, they're going to say, you let them get away with that? 
It's, it's fundamental to, to our sense of justice. It's what, it's what drives us in our life. We have this sense of right and wrong. We have this sense of justice. I mean, and we say, are you going to let them get away with that? But they're not getting away with it when we forgive. They're not. Because that sin has been paid for by Jesus. So, in explaining this, disciples are wrestling with it. And, um, of course, Peter always opens his mouth before he thinks. He says, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother? You go, okay, I'll get starting to get this forgiveness thing, you know, and the enemies and the whole bit, you know, that's all pretty out there. So Peter is trying to work it all out and he says, well, okay, Jesus, then, you know, how many times shall I forgive somebody? Seven. Seven times? He was being incredibly generous. Okay, Jesus, I get it. We've got to forgive people. Why do they keep sinning? Why do they keep hurting us? What, what do we do then? How many times? Seven times? What does Jesus say? Well, I tell you, not seven times, but 70 times seven. And then if you keep reading on, it says, and that's not even enough. So how can Jesus say this? Forgiveness is based on dependently actually being paid for. Justice is served. Forgiveness is not, is, it's not forgetting that the sin happened. It's not ignoring that this person's done this before. If you truly forgive somebody, if you say I forgive you, if we truly forgive somebody, then it's like it's never happened before. We don't ever bring it up again. If you say you've forgiven somebody and you truly do, then you'll never ever bring it up again. You'll never say, ten years down the track, oh yeah, I remember, you remember you did that, you know. I forgave you for that then. See, grace never runs out. Now we had a family situation, I'm not going to go and explain the details, but one of uh, Jenny in a conversation said, you know what, we've just got to apply grace in this situation. And it it was a really unjust situation. And the other family member said, that person's been given enough grace. They've run out, basically, of grace. I think they reached their 77 times. But grace never runs out. That's the whole fundamentals of our faith. All those sins have been paid for. And that's the basis by which we forgive. So now let's go back to these verses with all that. If you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, your Father will not forgive your sins. If you're still seeking the punishment of others who have wronged you, if you are still seeking that, if you are living by the fundamentals of justice and you are not walking like those people had never done these things and you're not forgiving your enemies and you're not praying for them and you're not actually accepting that their sins have been paid for, then you clearly have not accepted the fact that Jesus died for the sins of all humankind, including you. I think that's what these verses are saying. If you haven't embraced this fact that Jesus died for the sins of everyone, then you won't be able to forgive because it won't make sense to you. And if we refuse to give, then we are saying, well, God's grace is sufficient for me, but it's not sufficient for you. That's what we're saying. And so what Jesus is saying here, if you don't understand, if you don't apply this principle to your own life, 
or to the lives of others, then how can you apply it to your own life? If you don't really understand that I died for the sins of everyone, how can this apply to your own life? You refuse to forgive, then you're not getting the whole concept of the gospel. Now, I've had these discussions with people who are thinkers all the time and you know, and who are highly educated and they're saying, well, hang on, no, just, this, is, this does not work in our world. And I think even in the religious context it doesn't. One of the problems that the Islamic faith has is they do have mercy. It is described in the Quran. They have mercy. But justice is never satisfied when mercy is offered. And so it's very limited mercy. And even though you might say, well, I'll overlook that now, which uh, you, know, you, you do hear that in the context of Islam, we'll overlook that now. It can be brought up again because it's never dealt with. See, see, justice is never truly done when mercy is offered in the context of any other religion except Christianity. Because of grace and because of Christ's sacrifice and because all those sins have been paid for, that is the distinctive. Now, I just want to just finish by talking about law and order because this obviously brings up the questions of law and order. Well, how, if this is going to apply, how do we have law and order? How do we actually have justice in our society? We're told in the Bible to respect the authorities and actually to live in an ordered world and we do need to have laws that people comply with. So how do you exercise grace in the context of that? When I was the director of Melbourne Youth for Christ, we were reaching a lot of marginalised, difficult young people who were sinners in many ways, and they were also offenders. And so we set up a program. We put all these, bought, we got a big grant. We put all these computers in the back room of our office, and we were training these young people in computer skills at a time when computer skills were very sought after because there wasn't a lot of people who were using computers, and we were preparing jobs for them. I came in one morning, went out the back, all the computers are gone. Back windows broken, the doors open. Some young people came in and said, where's the computers? We said, oh, somebody took them. And it wasn't long before they worked out who it was because young people, when they're marginalised and offenders, they know how to find stuff out. And they came to us and said, it was one of the girls who actually came here to do the training who took them, we found out. We called the police. The police went over, they found them at her house. We recovered most of the computers. That girl was convicted, she was on bail, she went to court. We turn up at the court and we say to the magistrate who did know us very well because we were always turning up to the courts, we will take her and look after her, please don't lock her up and he was going to lock her up in jail. We advocated for her. We said, look, she's been doing really well. We stood up for her. We took her and for the first time in her life she finally understood what grace was. That's how you apply grace in the context of law and order. We didn't hold those sins against her. We just ignored them. We actually said it was like they didn't happen and we offered her what she needed to have and that was grace. This is a distinctive of our faith. This is our mission. This is what we ask of other people to consider. Above all other things is this dealing of the whole issue of sin and wrong in our world that Jesus did through his death and resurrection. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you died for us, that you love us, and you provided a way for us to experience forgiveness, true forgiveness. Lord, help us to live this.
reality. Um, even though we're in a world where there's a lot of pain and suffering, there's a lot of wrong. And it does not make sense in the context of the law and order world that we live in. But, Lord, we just pray that you'll help us to truly reflect your forgiveness in our life and extend that to others. And that they will know your grace and love and be able to come into your kingdom. In your name, Jesus. Amen.